silver bells, sweet silver bells, all seem to say, throw cares away. Christmas is here, bringing good cheer to young and old, meek and the bold, ding dong ding dong, that is the song, with joyful ring, all carolling, one seems to hear words of good cheer from everywhere, filling the air, oh how they round, raising the sound, all in the dells, telling us Gotta love that ding dongity ding dongity got going on there. Hey, what you up to, Mr. Kitty? He's actually watching the scroll across the bottom of the video. Uh oh, he's checking out the scroller. He is fascinated by simple moving graphics on a screen. When we watch SpaceX launches, he loves their graphics at the bottom of the screen. Yeah, I've been keeping up, I've been trying to keep up with them as much as possible lately. They launch so much stuff, though. <laughs> you know, it's I'm, routine. I was listening to China the other day talk about how great their space program, and then the guy says, the British reporter says, well, is it as good as SpaceX? He said, nobody's as good as SpaceX. Man. He said, even the United States isn't as good as SpaceX. Because <laughs> he was talking about how he was um, going to, you know, uh, take over the space, the space weaponry race. 
And then that's when the guy brought up Elon Musk. It was just too funny. Why did I have my camera not working? Ah, there it is. Okay. I've been having issues with this camera for some reason. Uh, actually, guys, we have Martin Shoemaker on with us tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about him in a few minutes. Let me get a drink here. Mm. I hope you all enjoyed Carol of the Bells. I'm not sure why it dropped off screen there for a few seconds, but it did. Uh, it's one of my favorite versions. What's that, Jackie? Uh, you, what do you mean? Am I religious? Yeah, I wouldn't describe myself as religious now. Spiritual, maybe. Religious. Mm, I'm not really a religious person. Well, mainly because I'm fickled and I couldn't figure out what religion I'd want to be. Now, if I get some space-based religion, we might be able to talk about that. Yeah, you know, maybe the Mormons or, or some of these other relations that say they come from outer space. We might be able to do that. I don't know. So, Martin, how you been, man? How you been? Things been good? You been staying busy? I'm pretty busy. Uh, I wrote a complete novel in October. I didn't wait for November like most people. Um, got that out to the agent, so we'll see how that goes. And I've started, and I'm probably halfway through another one. So I've been really hitting the writing this this fall and winter. Well, that's I good. I mean, really fall. I mean, is it cold where you're at? Or yeah, well, it's still fall, isn't it? We still got a couple of more days. Yeah, about what five more days, I think, before winter. But yeah, uh, here it's it's weird. It's we've had some high 30s, but mostly at nights in the 40s, maybe 50s in the daytimes in the 60s. Like today, it was uh, even today it was overcast, but it was still like 64, 65 degrees outside, and uh, it's nice. It's comfortable. Most of it, the sun's out. It's really actually really nice weather. Yeah, and. Uh, well, I was asking because, you know, some of my friends have been stuck in places where there's a lot of snow and they've been actually doing a lot of writing because they can't even get out their damn house to go get something to eat. Uh, they've actually had, they have actually had, they have stuff brought to them. I was like, they got a friend up. He went, he was going to go snow skiing this year. I think he said in Aspen, but it went, wherever it was when he first got there, there wasn't much snow. So he went to a different place and uh, then he got snowed in and he's been there now for 26 days. He's wrote two books since he's been there. He said, I would have never thought this was possible because his family was down at the other um, at the other resort when he got snowed in. Hmm. So so they went home and he was still stuck. And uh, I guess the peace and quiet, no one around him, no one bugging him, uh, the sheer beauty of the snow, I, I guess, motivated him. Now, are, are they any good, Martin? That's that's you know anybody's best guess here, but but he did get him out. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, if y'all gonna, if y'all going to use the messenger tonight, that's fine. I would rather y'all use the, the um, room, the um, the uh, chat room. I'm sorry, the uh, stream room uh, chat box. It's, it's just easier because Martin can see him as well. When y'all are on Messenger, which I see is a bunch of y'all. I know, I know y'all like to use my Messenger, and that's fine. But uh, it's just I have to read the questions and stuff like that, or I have to make sure because I see um, what do you what? Do you, so Billy Ray, Billy Ray, first thing comes in. Well, what's Martin's claim to fame? I don't know. What is your claim to fame, Martin? Pretty uh, good writer. I'm I'm just a guy who writes. Um, I have if I have to have a claim to fame, I would say it's two things. My short story today, I'm Paul, which is going to probably outlive me. It's been reprinted in so many places. The latest printing is in a college ethics textbook. Oh shit! <laughs> so this this one, if anybody has read my work, the odds are they've read that one. But I did also have the number one science fiction ebook on Amazon for science science fiction Kindle books for the month of uh, October 
So a lot of people may have seen me there as well. Yeah, and there's a lot of competition on Amazon, so it's hard to get up there. There's a lot of people turning in books. Well, what what was the title? I mean, what was it? That was The Last Dance. It's sort of, I, I liken it to Citizen Kane in space, where Citizen Kane is this investigation into the past of this man who just died, and you don't understand the story until you understand the past. Similarly, The Last Dance is a captain that the admirals and other powerful people want charged with mutiny. His crew has let them know that if they want to see what mutiny really looks like, they they can let them know because that ship is going to Mars and the crew may just decide to just hang up and we're not doing anything and good luck keeping the ship running for five months. And one lone inspector general is caught in the middle of this trying to figure out how to find the true story and a solution that will keep everything going. That sounds interesting because it sounds a little bit like the, um, the cop from expanse. Um, Oh guys, if y'all know what expanse, it's a TV. I'm sure. I don't know if it started out as a book or not. It's a book. Is it? Okay. Cause I wasn't sure. Cause sometimes, sometimes TV series come first and then a book comes afterwards. It's not always a book comes first with series guys. It's weird. Yeah. Um, no, but no, the cop in Expanse is, kind of gives me a similar feel. Not I have to read yours to be, you know, 100% sure, but I, I get, because I mean, that's kind of what he was doing. He was, you know, trying to find stuff and he was trying to really keep the shit together while he was doing it because there was a lot of stuff exploding on around him. What do you mean? What, what you mean? What I, would I recommend the Expanse? Yeah, I'd recommend the Expanse. It's, it's worth watching. It's yeah. fun. Now, it's not, they got some of the seasons are slower than other seasons, but, and there's some stuff in there you're not going to expect, but, uh, it's it's decent, yeah. I mean, it's 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 six seasons, and they're what half seasons, really. I think they're eight or ten episodes or something. That's worth watching. Now you should go out. Anything Martin's got, you should go out and read. Um, is he a winner? Yeah, you are a winner. Though. Which which book, uh, which trilogy are you in for Writers of the Future? I was in Volume Thirty One. Thirty one. Oh wait, that's going. What do you mean? That's do I have Thirty One? Let me see. I oh, think you do. Cool. And there's 31 right there. Let's see if we can get it out of there. Hold on, guys. We're gonna. Uh, well, we got a lot. Of, I think we only got all the way down to 26 or something. But this is part of the uh, the 12 book set, on the 10 book set that he's been talking about. Oh well, yes, this is it right here. There's the book right there. Cool ass cover on it. I gotta say, I like that cover. Yeah. And in a minute, we'll go dig out the story he was in. Um, well, no, I mean it's actually. It's a good bit of prestige to win in Writers of the Future. It is. Every, the competition is fierce. It is. And everybody in their mama knows who these people are. Well, let me put it this way. If there's a publisher out there, they know who Writers of the Future are. They know Galaxy Press is. I've known John Goodwell, Goodwin long enough to know that they're very well connected in these people. I mean, uh, Books a Million and Barnes & Noble. Um, oh, no, it's Books a Million. Well, anyway, two of them order. 500 each signed books from the get-go mm-hmm. before there's anything going on. I mean, and, I mean, they're selling the regular books, mind you, but uh, they're also selling the, um, no, they're selling, they still sell it, but they sell the autograph ones as well. All of mine are autographed, Jess. Everything you see, not, not this, because this is going to be given away later in the, in the year, um, pretty soon, actually. Uh, these, everything you see here and here and here, and there's some over there, they're all signed. And they're signed differently, so they're very unique in the fact that. So all the all the winners signed them. 
I had all the judges sign them, which which is normal. But sometimes you miss some judges because they're not there. Like Tom Wood last year wasn't there for the signing, but I caught him after the signing and made him sign it in a different way. But also when we're at the gala, I get the family members to sign them, not just the winners, not just, but I actually had the family members sign each one next to the signature of the winner. And uh, it's so it makes them very unique. Well, that way, if any of them ever hit the big, the big dogs, <laughs> then you got something that's very unique with them in it. Um, I, I'm not a writer, so I couldn't tell you that, but maybe Martin knows. So, he uh, Christopher's asking. So the first time you get a book published, and the book starts to, you know, you start to see the book moving. It, what is? Can you explain the feeling you get from it, the exhilaration or whatever it is? Um, that you, you start to feel, I don't know. I've never written a book. I just said that. <laughs> I don't know, guys. You got to, I'm asking Martin because Martin would, Martin's got books out there. So, you know, he knows what it feels like to have a successful book. I have no idea what it's like. Now, that, that first one is very special. Um, I think it was Stephen King who talked about the first one. You're going to celebrate all sorts of ways that you won't later because, Either they don't do as well, which is sad, or they do better, but you start starting to realize that this is a long process, that any one book is not a career. I mean, unless you're um, uh, Harper Lee or who wrote Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind and Lee wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, there are those rare cases for somebody's entire career is one blockbuster book. But if you don't happen to be one of those who's the right right time with the right story, eventually you realize that it's really cool to have a book out and I'd better be working on the next one. And what's the next one going to be? And you just got to keep going. It's, um, yeah, well, I I mean, if you want to be successful, you got, I mean, when you talk about, uh, was it Wesley Dean Smith, how many books does he have? I, I don't even know if anybody's got that number yet. It's got to be close to 300 at this point. Yeah, because I was picking on him last time we were down, uh, staying at the Lowe's Hotel. We were down at the bar, and, and I was giving him stuff. I'm like, man, how many books do you actually have? Uh, and I'm like, come on, dude, you got to actually. He said, he kind of looked at me like, I don't know if I actually know how many I have. I mean, that's not good when the writer don't know how many books he has. The guy no. can just write, people. I mean, we're talking. You know, I asked him because a friend of mine, Nick Redfern, is a nine, what we call a nine to five writer. He gets up, he goes in his room at nine, he stays to five, and he punches out books. I think he's got 160, 170 books now. And they're on a wide range of topics. And and Dean seems to be the same way. I mean, he just seems to be pump, 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 pump. Uh, Why, you know, well, not every book's going to be a success, guys. I mean, come on, let's be honest. It's hard. I mean, there's a lot of competition. And you've you've got to you've got to be. It's like when they get into this competition. So, so this is. I haven't seen uh, the artwork. I mean, the colored artwork on this. But this was, I believe, if y'all can see it in black and white because it's kind of dark. Um, this is the artwork for the story, which is next to it right here. Uh, how, how many words was this story? Around because uh, you're taking me back now, ten years. But around- yeah, it's been a while. 11,000, I believe. Ooh, that's not bad. I mean, it limits 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, the name is the story is Unfriend. Unrefined. Uh, under. God, I need my glasses. Jesus, sorry about that, guys. I thought that was, <laughs> I thought there was an F at all. <laughs> uh, that means I need to, I must need a new pair of glasses. But anyway, 
You know what I don't see in here is the color versions of the artwork. Did they not do that in book 31? 31 was the first one with the color versions, and the color versions were all in the back. Oh, that's why I'm looking in the front. They had to learn how to how to do this. So with 31, it was still experimental. So, yeah, that, that's why I couldn't find it. Because, you know, I was thinking, I said, yeah, I'm so used to it. Because I've been with them for, uh, what, five books now. So 40, 39, 38, 37, 36, yeah. And see, all of them is uh, – so how did you feel about this when you – make sure I'm showing the right one. So when you saw this, how did you feel about the artwork? I mean – um, because you know, I've seen when it comes to these reveals, I see a lot of things, and I see a lot of crying going on, and I see a lot of cross eyes going on, and and for the most part, it looks like people get it pretty good, but it doesn't look like they always do. That's that's why I always ask. It was interesting, and I absolutely loved it. I've got my copy hanging proudly on my wall. Um, but it was interesting because I didn't know what she would do for the art um and i had some ideas of what she might do and she didn't do any of those ideas for those <laughs> who aren't familiar with the process we're not supposed to know who is illustrating our story and then during the middle of the workshop week we have this big reveal where they've got the pictures all up in a room with the artist beside them and they let us writers in and we have to figure out which picture is ours and which artist is ours. And it's a big surprise moment. I had a little bit of a cheat because my artist was native Chinese speaker. She speaks English far better than I speak Mandarin or whichever dialect of Chinese she's mm, probably speaking. Mandarin. But 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 she's not a native speaker, and so she had questions that had to be asked to explain things like just 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 terminology that we use that that no one would teach in a traditional english language course it's like yeah. i had a point where one of the characters calls shotgun that's yeah, yeah, a yeah. that anybody in america recognizes that but she didn't know it so i had to explain it so they came to me and said English is not her native language, so she has these questions that we're asking for her. So immediately I now know that my artist is a female who is speaking some other language. language yeah. So that chopped down the possibilities in the artist group pretty well. So I kind of knew who it was going to be. But what she chose to draw, and, and they do this in consultation with the judges. The judges are essentially acting as art directors in the here, saying, this is a professional commission now. This is what you would do on an actual story. You would look at the story, and then you would discuss your ideas with the art director to see which ones they like, and they will give you some guidance. And so they picked out this scene, which is basically, it's the dilemma point early in the book or early in the story where the narrator has suddenly realized that his best friend, the head of this project, is not in this part of the station at all. He's in the other part at the end of the long arm where there is a fusion reactor getting ready to go critical. And he's over there trying to find something out. And this guy has just realized how screwed they could all be. And that's exactly the moment she caught in there is that look on his face in that moment 
which I never would have guessed as, because I'm thinking starscapes and planetscapes and ships traveling. And she picks this quiet little moment where he realized that everything's going to fall apart now. And so it just stunned me when I saw that because it was perfect. It just was not something I would have ever thought of. Pardon me, the cat trying to kill himself. Yeah, I used to, I got dogs now. When I used to have cats, I used to always get all on my damn keyboards. Um, I'd be in the middle of a show, and one of them just come flop its butt down and keep it like, hey, Dad, what's up? I'm like, no, time to go. Get off. Uh, well, guys, so, you know, like I said, I, I have I have bought many books over the years based on the covers, not knowing what was in them. Um, well, Gene, it's, it's not always the best way to buy a book, but, I mean, a cover can make the difference. When you're looking at it, you're like, damn, that is, this ought to be a really good story. Now, you might get in it, and it might be a really good story. You might get in it, and it might be, oh, my God, let me get my how much I paid for this back. Uh, but that's the point. So if you have a good artist that does good work, they can sell your book, whether it's a good or a bad book. She can still get good sales by having a good cover. Covers are important. Uh, you can ask some of the, the bigger writers uh, what they think about covers, but they're going to tell you the same thing. Uh, the cover is important. It needs to be there. It needs to stand out. It needs to get someone's attention. And it needs to make you want to read that story. Now, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, some of L. Ron Hubbard's old covers from his old stories. When you look at them, you can kind of tell. I mean, really, you, you pretty much know what the story is by looking at the cover. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that was also the way he wrote. So it was a little different. Today, covers can be deception. It's like when you watch the movie trailers for a movie, and that was the best part of the whole damn movie. <laughs> you were like, okay, why did I waste my time seeing this movie? Oh, people, y'all know damn good and well. Y'all see trailers on movies sometimes, and that's the whole whole movie right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh. one of the th- things they try to teach the illustrators on that side of the contest is that this cover, the illustration, has to raise questions that the reader wants to answer. And some of these modern stylized covers, they don't raise any questions. They're... They're graphic arts. They're not illustration. Now, that's faddish. That's that's trendy. But story co- covers that raise questions are always good for selling books. Well, it is. I, I don't know. I mean, today's a little different. Z Jenner's look at the world differently. You know, and I remember my grandfather used to bitch about us all the time. You youngins look at the world. You're a bunch of morons. And in a lot of ways, he was right, because look at the world. It's not exactly the the best friendliest place to live at the moment. But, you know, when you look at different generations, and and it's hard to make people understand this in sales sometimes, that you're not selling to one generation. You're selling to five, Mm -hmm. you know. So you have to be thinking about that uh, when you're sales. Now, obviously, the kid-kid generation you're not going to get into unless it's just some kind of book that's a serious crossover. But, you know, when you're talking from Z-Gen's, to to X to, from the X from the X from the baby boomers to the millennials to the X geners to the Z geners, um, that's four good populations that can read and can spend money, and uh, you can capture one book and capture. We know that from all the movies we see that come from books. We know one book can capture all four generations. Uh, it's just got to be the right book. What do you mean? It doesn't always have to be an action book. No, sometimes somebody can write a book that's profoundly good that doesn't involve blowing shit up matter of fact 
to be honest with you, if you read through most of these trilogies for writers of the future, you're going to find there's not all that much blowing shit up in these. Mm -mm. And there's no cursing. There's no heavy sex or anything like that. So I always tell people PG-13. And you know what? I have read now 11, 12 of these books. And I've enjoyed every one. So now I'm not going to tell you I liked every story. But I've liked most of them. And I like them because it takes me back to a different era. When I was young growing up, TV was different. There was no cursing. There wasn't boobies popping out all over the place. It was just, you know, it was just clean, wholesome television. And it was still funny as you know what. Uh, so it, it tells me, you, even in these generations, you don't have to have profanity, nudity to sell things or to, to enjoy them. No, I'm not against it, goofball, but I'm not. I'm just saying you don't have. It doesn't have to be the only way. We've gotten to a point in movies lately that it's pretty much blow shit up, blow some more shit up, kill some people, um, kind of be a love story, but then kill somebody at the end. I mean, it's just, it's sad. Uh, so, Martin, what's what's your favorite genre? Uh, no, I've seen it, Jimmy. That's what I'm asking. Uh, what's your favorite genre to write in? Mostly hard science fiction, but I will branch out into fantasy and I will branch out into mystery, which is actually for short mystery fiction. There aren't a lot of markets, so why I'm punishing myself that way, I don't know. Because yeah, you, you enjoy it, probably. I enjoy uh, it, and I've sold science fiction mysteries, but straight mysteries are really hard to sell in short fiction. Novels do great. No wonder why. Well, maybe there's just a lot of them out there, or maybe there's—I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why that'd be hard to sell. Actually, I mean, there's there, a lot there, of readers out there. There's only if you look at pro-paying uh, short fiction mystery markets, there is only two. Oh well, there shit. There are a lot of semi-pro and token, but if you're looking at pro-paying, there's only two, and I assume that means that the market's not supporting more than two. And those yeah, two, was probably not. Yeah, you're probably right. And, and those two, Hitchcock and Queen, are some of the slowest markets to respond. So I might write a short mystery and take two years for Hitchcock and Queen together to reject them, reject it, <laughs> and then I can start looking at the the smaller <laughs> markets. Oh man, that's 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 ridiculous. That shouldn't be like that. Um, uh, what is it? Um, near near time sci-fi. What do they call it? Uh, when the science fiction is near this time, say maybe like a hundred or two hundred years in the future, uh, oh man, they told me to name a damn genre. Now I can't remember what it's called. Uh, near now, ah, times. Oh hell, if I know. But anyway, they're talking about you know when you're writing sci-fi, uh, like something like Babylon Five, where it's only a hundred or two hundred years in the future. You know, it's really close to where we are right now, politically wise and technolo technologically wise. It's much closer to where we are today. You know, some of those I actually like. I don't, I'm not exactly sure why, but some of that I actually like. You ever thought about writing any of that, or is it too much of a pain in the ass? Uh, mostly that's where I aim is for near future, near space, hard science fiction. Oh, okay. Well, see, um, you're right up my alley then. Yeah. Essentially, I, I feel like The Martian, they, they wrote The Martian for me, and they made the movie for me, and the rest of you are allowed to enjoy it too. But The Martian is exactly the sort of thing I aspire to. Yeah. Well, what do you mean, Chris? Well, what are you talking about? How many? Well, there's a lot of Martian movies, yes, but I, that's not what he's, what he's talking about. No. 
No, you're thinking of um, oh, uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, whatever the hell it was called. The guy with the monkey walking around who found the Indian guy. Yeah, that's what you're thinking. I know what you're talking about. No, it's yeah. not what he's talking about. And then there's the ones. Oh, then oh, I know. Oh, I know what you're talking about there. That's um, oh Jesus, he did a series of them where they went. They went to Mars and finally Earth blew itself up and they were living and the Martians Ray came Murray. and get, yeah, yeah, that's so. Martian Chronicles. Yeah, yeah, the Martian Chronicles. Yeah, see that, but there's much more recent stuff. You know, there was just something recent done called Mars um, where basically they go to Mars. It's a really good, it's a good, and every now and then they'll drop in a scientist on the sideline talking about it. I enjoyed the series. It was on Netflix, yes. Uh, it was it was interesting to watch. Well, I'm I'm a big fan of going to Mars. Why? Because I, I just am. I want to go live with Elon. Yes, <laughs> I'm going to live with. I want to live with Elon. Oh, by the way, we got to give away a lightsaber day, and we're going to give away a Kyle Ren lightsaber. These are about a thousand bucks to get him off the street. Oh. Uh, you know, it's the it's the red one with the two red things coming off the side. They make full sound effects and everything. They're great, but. For the 25th person who writes to me and tells me the actor's name who played, yes, who played, who played the guy, you know, Darth Vader's grandson. Yes, I gave you an answer, but um, if, if you're the 21st person to write in and you tell me who played Darth Vader's grandson, mm-hmm. uh, yes, that would be Indiana Jones' son, you know, wrong character, same person. Um all right, we'll we'll have it sent out to you. Mm-hmm. I'll announce it probably at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we gave away um, Luke Skywalker's yesterday. Yes. Well, I, the question was, is who played the actor? And I said Mark Hamill like three times. <laughs> it still took him like 30 tries to get it right. Oh, I was laughing. I couldn't stop laughing. But come on, people. These are easy. We want to give these away. And you may get... I think I got a couple left. A couple of uh, some trilogies. I think it's book 36. Yes, I think I got three or four I'm laying around. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm getting rid of all the books I got in the house now because I got to restock later in the year. Mm-hmm. Well, I always get, I get everybody send me books. Yeah, I get, I get, well, like I just had Wolf send me too. I got, I get, he had me, sent me my copy because it's going to go up there. And then I, I give away a copy. Yeah, I, get, I, I just like to give away books. I believe in literacy, even though personally I do more listening than reading because I, I, I just don't have the time to read. And, oh, I'm glad I said that. So Amazon is looking for a way through AI, matter of fact, that every book made can now be read in audio because there's so many people today that have lives that, that, that would allow them to listen to an audio book but not have time to read a book. Yes, because you can be at work and plug in an earbud and listen to a story. I've been listening to Mission Earth. I'm on uh, book five right now when I'm driving back and forth to work. Uh, it's just a nice way of doing it. And, and it's great to have the sound effects and all, too. It really is. So what do you, what do you think about audiobooks, Martin? You think good idea, bad idea? Uh, I listen to way too too many audiobooks. Hmm. Uh, this is all my friend Bill Ledbetter's fault because his first novel only came out as an Audible book. It was not wow, available cool. for print. So if I wanted to support my buddy, I had to get an Audible membership. 4,000 audiobooks later. What's a great way of doing it? Because, I mean, 
you know, for me to read a book, I got to get comfortable. I got to find a place to, to sit down and relax. But audio, you know, I'll be working, like doing archives and stuff. I can have one plugged into my ear or listening through my stereo. Uh, it's just easier for me. And I get way more listen time. And I, I tell new authors all the time when they send me stuff. I said, man, if you got an audio book, I'll actually talk about the book with you. So if you send me one to read, odds are I'm not going to be able to read it before I actually have you on the, the radio show. And uh, so some of them do, some of them don't. One guy said, well, I'll, I'll have it done for you. Send it to me in Microsoft, Sam. I said, I'm not listening to no audio book in Microsoft, Sam. <laughs> Guys, if y'all don't know what Microsoft Sam is, look it up. It's the worst form of audio you can ever listen to. Oh, I'm sure it was great, you know, 15 years ago when it came out. So speak, speaking of that, I mean, we get a lot of questions and I've been seeing these floating across the chat group, but um, I know we've talked about this AI a lot. And I know that I think the AI is going to be a lot harder on um, the illustrators than it is on the authors, but it does have potential, at least in smaller things to hurt authors. I've noticed it's, it's not when you, when you do a real story with a, with an AI, something that involves 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 words it's it's always screwed up at least in two or three places inside the the book whereas an author would, would catch that and fix that um but i noticed um jeff weiner came on with me and he did a comic book so not only did this thing do the balloons and the, the all the the stuff that went in all the words that went into it and did all the illustrations and it was actually a decent comic book that kind of shit. So, and this was a while back because as soon as I seen that, the next day I called um, um, John Goodwin and said, "What the hell, John? What's going on with this?" And I said, "How are y'all going to deal with this as part of the contest?" I said, "We, uh, you can't be accepting AI as part of the contest." So, I asked all authors and all illustrators the same thing: How is this going to affect y'all in the future? I mean, is this going to get into your money abilities? It's a really complicated question. Um, I, I, I have opinions across the board practically on this one because I have seen the AI generated stuff and it is crap. Yeah, a lot of it is. I can, I can show, I can analyze all the ways in which it has to be crap based on how their systems work. But I'm reluctant to do the analysis because then somebody will listen in and hear me say it and fix try it. to fix it. Yeah. But but realistically, there there's cases where lawyers have been caught using AI to write legal briefs. Yeah, I've heard that. Partly because the AI cited cases that never existed. Existed. But think about what you want in a legal brief. You want point one, point two, point three, point four, point five that all together add up to conclusion six. So they are all very, very closely tied together. This is what they call a predictive text that because of the four points we've already made, the fifth point must be this. And the fifth point and all those means the sixth point must be this and so on. Predictive text is a really boring story. Yeah. If everything that is, comes up is obviously predictable from what came before, then you don't need to finish the story. There are there are no no quality twists. You can have twists, but there are no quality twists where you've got them tied in. Um, I, I, my perf perfect example isn't from uh, a book; it's from movies. If you remember Die Hard, mm -hmm. you remember early before the tower has been invaded, 
and the schmuck at the office party is bragging about how Holly has got this wonderful watch that shows how valuable she is, and it's a Rolex. And what's the very last thing we see at the end of Hans Gruber hanging onto her wrist by the watch? And John McClane reaches down and unclasps the watch, and Hans falls to his death. There was something that was planted into the story 10 minutes in that became a vital solution to the story in the last five minutes. That's not something you get without a person thinking through because the AI doesn't understand anything. It looks at what it has and predicts the next thing. I very much doubt you're going to get an AI in current generations that is going to predict that this thing that popped up early in the story is a crucial element at the end. And I don't know the writers. Did they put the watch in and then decide what to do with it? Or did they picture the end scene and fix and, and then put the watch in back at the start? But that sort of thing that is a twist that was always there, but not obvious until you needed it. That's something I don't think we're going to see for a long time with AI. But, yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't either, but yeah. But on the other hand, I am not a person you want to trust to make these predictions because I am no judge of what the market wants. I remember, I want to say this was early 90s or maybe it was late 80s, where this show was on TV and I watched the first episode and I thought, this is the dumbest thing ever. This isn't going to last two weeks. I cannot imagine anybody watching this. Well, that's what, 30 years ago and we still have Survivor on TV? God, no. And, and I was convinced that it was just the most awful thing, but I was looking at it from a story point of view and not all audience really cares about story the way we writers think it is. I mean, Michael Bay has a career because people like lots of cool explosions and action and fast moving cars and stuff. He doesn't have a career for his story. His stories are thin. They're just an excuse for the action scenes. So, I mean, we have people who will watch other people play video games. For that matter, we have people who watch other play people play sports. So, where I prize the originality and quality of the story, that may not be what wins in the marketplace. If that AI can provide the requisite amounts of boom, bang, pow, maybe that's what the audience wants. Dan, it is sometimes what the audience wants. Mm -hmm. It's like when we talk about blowing shit up. I mean, it's, um, it's sometimes it's just what it is. I mean, if you go back and look at some of the Marvel movies, some of the Marvel movies were pretty good. And some of the Marvel movies were just, let's blow some shit up and, and make some money. Well, no, Bruce. I mean, some of them, I mean, come on, dude. Some of the movies were not all that good. Mm -hmm. And then let's look at Avatar 2. Now, Avatar was beautiful. Both movies were beautiful. But Avatar 2 was just kind of, it was not what I thought it was going to be. Let me put it that way. And after 10 years of hype, it should have been way better than it was. And I'll be nice about it because, you know, it's Avatar, but mm, it could have been better. I'm just well, saying. I was having a, a talk on this recently that I was preparing, and I was talking about Inception, which is one of Christopher Nolan's more successful movies, with the critics at least. It was a very, very, very cerebral, deep, complicated film, and it did 
okay at the box office, and the critics loved it. And then we have Fast and Furious, who are up to what their tenth movie. Yeah, I think it is and, a tenth movie actually. And and they're just driving stuff around and shooting stuff and blowing stuff up and lots of celebrities doing lots of mugging for the camera, and the audience wants that. So it's not a criticism. It's just that's what they want. And, that's what they want. Yeah. You know, and so it's like you can be the one who's concerned about the art, and that may make for a much smaller audience than the one who's concerned about the big splashy stuff that grabs eyes and attention. Well, well, Bruce, I mean, you can do a movie like we were just talking about these books, these um, anthologies. You can do stuff that will keep a big audience entertained. It's only going to keep them entertained for X amount of time. Now, these movies like him and I are talking about, right, right, Martin and I are talking about right now, these are big, flashy movies. These are like the big Marvel movies at three hours that will keep you listening or watching for three hours. Um, it's, it's, you know, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Um, you're talking about Back to the Future? Well, Back to the Future had, what, three successful movies? I, I mean, I wasn't the hugest fan of Back to the Future, but I wasn't a hater either. Mm-hmm. No, I... I Sci-fi movies are fun. Um, oh, you're talking about um, the video games, The Last Starfighter. Yes, that's what you're talking about. I have not seen The Last Starfighter in uh, probably 25 years. It, I, it's not that I hated the movie. I just haven't seen it in a long time. It's uh, it's still available. Yeah, I'm sure it's still available. It's just about a kid who wins a video game and finds his ass in space blowing shit up. That's basically what it's about. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the movie in a nutshell. But it it is goofy to watch. Yeah, there's some other parts in there. You know, there's all the Star Treks. I mean, you got well, no, okay. So no, Jack, you're wrong. Gene Roddenberry did write a lot of Star Treks, and he produced a lot of Star Treks. But nobody, by any means, did he write all the Star Treks. I mean, shit, he's been dead for a while. He couldn't have wrote a lot of ones that came past. Um, no, Star Trek had a lot of writers, some better than others, and. Um, Star Trek even today will take stories you can send them, but I'll tell you a little secret about Star Trek. If you want to, if you even want to get a chance to do Star Trek, don't make the story about yourself. <laughs> um, uh, just a piece of advice. Uh, I've talked to quite a few people who work in that group, and they tell me the same thing. Yes, yeah, send us a good story, but don't make it about yourself. Make it about the characters. That's. Well, because people do that. It's like they make it about yourself and put it in the character. It's not what they want. No, it's not. No, they have characters. They already have characters. <laughs> just, it's, it's just one of them things. It's, it's like asking mom and dad to read your book and taking their opinion as gospel. Now, some people may have parents that might maybe, maybe be honest, but most parents are not going to be. They're going to lie. I always give you books to, to other people to read. People you know that will give you an honest opinion. The same thing with illustrators. It's the same thing. I ask people all the time to watch my shows and tell me what they think. They, if, yeah, I don't mind. Criticism is good. Then it helps you straighten out your, anything you're doing wrong. Yeah, okay. Uh, oh, okay. Um Janine wants to know who is your personal favorite writer besides yourself. <laughs> I threw that in there. Ooh, that somewhat varies based on who I've read most recently. 
Um, but I would say my favorite across my reading career is Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell when they were writing together. Lucifer's yeah. Hammer and Oath of Fieldy are two books I can just read and reread and reread. They, um, well, no, well, guys, what do you mean you don't know who Larry Nevin is? Look him up. I met him five, I've met him for the last four or five years because I've been at the gala event and he shows up for it. No, last year I was his date. Mm-hmm. That's not like that, idiots. You people are idiots, man. No, now I haven't read anything. See, that's the point for me. That's what Martin and I were talking about. If someone has an audiobook, it's much easier for me to grab it, put it in a queue for whatever I'm doing. Uh, like when I'm done tonight, I have about nine archives of posts, so I'll probably listen to some audio while I'm doing it. Sometimes it's music, but if I've got good books or something to, to listen to or something I want to catch up on, bam, I'll, I'll plug it in, you know, either put it on stereo or put it on my ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just just a good way of doing it for people like me. Some some of us are busy in different ways. Mm. Well, put it this way. You know, he's talking about writing his second book. So for me, I was in L.A. four years ago. I managed to get about 12,000 words written. And then the year after that, I got about the same written, about 12,000. And then last year, or you, or you, anyway, right now I'm sitting at uh, 67,800 words. Yes, it's an it's a nightmare probably, and uh, this that's and this is only it's an it's an eleven day story. This is day like five, it's the start of day five. So this thing's going to be one hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand words easy, and there's no way I'm going to edit it. So I'm going to send it to somebody at Writers of the Future. No, Chris, Writers of the Future just going around editing people's stuff. So don't send it to them. If you want to send them a submission, Writers of the Future dot com, you can send them a submission. And it's got to be under 17,000. I, I would suggest you go read the rules so you don't get instantly disqualified. If you want to buy something, uh, galaxypress.com. Um, no, Rise of Future, it's a great group of people. If you can win, it's a great group to hang out with. Now, I, I didn't get to go back as far as Martin did. He's, a, he's on 31, so he's 10 years ago. So how were they doing it back then? Uh, staying, putting up at the hotel still like they do today? What hotel were y'all at? I, I might be uh, jealous. We were at the Lowe's. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's the mysteriousjapan.com. Nasty lows. I just don't like the lows. Uh, it's so corporate. It is. It, it, it's people. I just know the Roosevelt was nice. It was relaxed. It, the color schemes were nice. It puts you in a better mood. Yeah, it does. 
Well, it's on Hollywood Boulevard, so I imagine it's more expensive. But oh, the 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 costs of hotels there, the cost of of hotels you want to put people in, let's put it that way, are just insane. What do you mean, Chris? No, Chris, it's a big crowd they're putting in. So there's there's uh, 24 winners. How many ever judges, which there could be last year, there was a lot. Now, from what I was told, there's going to be even more judges this year. So you, between them, you might have 40 people there. And then there's people like me and other guests that are there. They're probably putting away 50 people. And then how much ever the staff is staying there. So I know John and Emily and Joni and all of them keep rooms there. So it's 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 upwards of fifty to sixty people there they have to put in hotel rooms. Mm. It's a and, lot of people. And I want to guess that the cost per night per room is high two hundreds, maybe three hundred. Oh yeah. Um when I looked up the room they had me in, it was around four seventy nine a night. Yeah. And uh but they had me in a little bigger room because I needed some extra space for doing interviews. Yeah. Uh, you can't just in, in a regular hotel room. It's hard to do interviews. It just doesn't feel right. But this one had a nice desk and it sat out and had nice lighting. Uh, well, John, it's just just how it is. No, you can't just show up. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. And if you notice, if y'all haven't noticed when I'm broadcasting live from there, I never say where we're staying. Not until the till everything's over, and then I say where we stay. I don't know until I, until they send me my my plane tickets which is until like a week before. I don't know where, where we're staying. And sometimes last year, I didn't know where we stayed until we were at the hotel. <laughs> it's not, it's need to know. And apparently I just don't need to know. No, there's no reason for me to know that. Writers of the future.com. Yes. Uh, submit, win and go. Um, no, they hook you up pretty good. They take pretty good care of you when you're there. Well, you gotta, you gotta buy food. I think you gotta pay for your talks. Um, but they pretty much pay for everything else. Yeah. Travel, lodging, some of the food. There's like a couple of nights where they pay. Yeah. Um, transportation to and from all that's covered. Yeah. And they will take people in buses early in the week. Well, big vans, not bus, bus, take people in big vans far away from Hollywood to a cheap grocery store where you can stock up on food and there's a refrigerator in the room. Yep. So you can eat economically that way. Yeah. And, and well, where you at? Well, everything's, well, you know what? It was weird. I, I went over to, I, I had left, a, um, I brought two laptops with me and I left a damn power cord for the laptop at home. I was like, bleep, 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 bleep. So I needed a second once so I went over to Target thinking, all right, I'm going to have to go I'm in Hollywood Boulevard. This is going to put me in a pool house at a crappy laptop. And Target, I got it for two seventy nine. I was stunned. It was so cheap. I was get out of here. I bought that and one of them um, um, ball Yeti mics. It was uh, it was a good price on it, too. I was, I was floored. But everything else, guys, just so you know, was outrageously expensive there. Uh, yeah, so we were eating YU burgers or whatever you call them. And everybody kept telling me how great they were because they were like $25 a burger. And I was like, these are nasty people. I mean, <laughs> and the guy's telling me, well, I'm, fr I'm from the deep south. I mean, we eat a lot of steak. Down here. Currently, right now in my freezer, there is uh, a two-thirds of a rack of ribeyes and a half of a filet mignon. Uh, because we buy them down here whole. 
So you can get a whole ribeye rack down here for $120. You'll get 14 two-inch ribeyes out of it. Beautiful steaks. And you can buy half of a filet mignon for when they're on sale for $9.99 for $30, and you'll get eight two-inch filets out of it. I mean, guys, I mean, for $60, you can get 16 You know how much is a filet cost at a, at a regular place? I mean, there's nowhere down here on the coast that you can buy filet mignon for under $35. It's mostly like 55 So, I mean... <laughs> And I get to cook them the way I want to cook them. Yes. No, it's, it's just part of it. See, that's, that's what I was telling people when all this crises were going on in the country. We were, our vegetables are local. Our meat's local. Even our gas is local. So we don't feel the pinch like the rest of the country does. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, if you want toilet paper. <laughs> you're feeling pinch on that. Oh, don't be idiots, people. No, don't be. Uh, what was that? Uh, Christina wants to know... Christina, where are you from? I don't even, What suburbs? Wait, where? I thought I knew all the boroughs. I don't even know how to pronounce that. It sounds like an Indian name. No. Oh, it's part of the Bronx. Oh, it's... All right, look, don't get all fussy with me. I was just... Anyway, she wanted to know... Uh, she was asking, what is your favorite sci-fi movie and your favorite sci-fi TV series? What are you like proposing to this guy or something? <laughs> uh, favorite movie? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, the The Martian is really high on my list. If I thought really hard, I could probably come up with another one. Um, but but The Martian is so so right next door, just around the corner, and covered that so well. Not perfectly. If you're an actual rocket scientist, there's stuff they got wrong in it. Yeah. But in, good enough to, to really be satisfying. As far as series go, I, I could be a traditionalist and say original Star Trek that I grew up mm. on. I can't say I hate it. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I kind of feel like Quantum Leap really appealed to me in a way that's not my normal science fiction mm. because the characters and the premise were so well done and so much of that so much of the project side of it the impossible dream side that they're trying to do this thing no one's ever done that reaching out and they overreached and that caused the whole problem that fed the series but the idea that this was engineers trying to solve a problem and that becomes the story had appeal to me you know have you seen the new quantum leap i have not that's on peacock is it yeah i think it's on peacock I, i've I seen i've seen i've seen season one and season two um okay it's it's hard to put this i mean it's basically quantum leap with you know with just new characters is what it is mm -hmm. I mean, the stories are kind of just like Quantum Leap. And I mean, you get a basic, but you got to watch because every now and then they, they try to get a little too overly politically correct or too woke might be a better word. So I tell people all this all the time. I don't care if you want to be woke, that's your business. But I don't want to see it in my football and I don't want to see it in my movies because frankly, if I want to see wokeness, I'll turn on NBC. Look, click. Oh, look at this. Click. Oh, look at this. I'm, that's all the woke I need for probably three years. And what I mean by this, people, is... is I'm older. Most of these lessons I've already learned. I don't need to learn these lessons. 
I'd like to watch my TV for what it is to relax and enjoy it. And uh, so I don't mind if you sneak one in there every once in a while, but if you start making a whole series like they did with Doctor Who, I get a little irritated. Just saying. Uh, what do you mean? Strange New Worlds? I like Strange New Worlds. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, they took a lot of liberties in it with Captain Pike, but, you know, still. Because C Captain Kirk wasn't a captain when Captain... Anyway, I'm just going to let that go. I'm just, just going to let that go. Yes. Well, it's the reason Discovery failed is because they, they, they got crazy. See, I tell this to people all the time. Discovery is great sci-fi. It just sucks at Star Trek. Because it went crazy in, in things that just, they changed the whole premise of Star Trek. How the Klingon War started, everything. It just, it just changed all of it. Uh, they went a little crazy with it. So, and, and the regulars or the old timers or anybody who wanted to stay within the guidelines of Star Trek got aggravated and stopped watching it. So that's what happened. Picard was okay. I don't, I don't know. You had to ask Martin. They want to know what you think of all the new Star Treks. I, I am too cheap to pay for streaming services. Mm. I, I, have, wouldn't, I wouldn't for the Star Trek, I'll be honest with you. I, I have never yet found a show I was willing to pay for because uh, I've got a house full of, of literally thousands of DVDs of things I already like and have already paid for. Yeah. And so I am more than happy that other people are seeing things they enjoy on these streaming channels. I just can't bring myself to pay money for television. Well, I see for me, it's a little different because at the station, we get some things kind of free. Like, well, Netflix, I get free because of my phone company. Mm -hmm. uh, they give me Netflix for free and then Hulu and uh, it's Hulu, Disney and ESPN. I get free from another one of the companies that we do business with. So we don't have to pay for that. And Amazon gives me like four other services for free. So, uh, And then my Roku services are free because we broadcast live on Roku. So a lot of stuff with them is, is free. So it's, it's a little different for me. But um, because things like Altered Carbon, I enjoyed watching a lot of nudity. I tell people all the time, don't watch this with your kids uh, unless your kid's like 25. Uh, just telling y'all. No, 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 no. It's internet. They have frontal back. There's a lot of nudity in Altered Carbon. But the premise of the TV series was good on how they invented the thing to uh, so you could live forever. Uh, yes, the sleeve. They call them a sleeve. And they're inserted in the back. They had they record you all the time. So when someone kills you, they just take the sleeve out and put it in a new body or an old body or a used body or an alcoholic body or a drug-addicted body, somebody out of prison. Yeah, because the prisoners got put into a cold ice. They, they were taken out of their bodies, and the bodies were given to other people. Yeah, it's crazy shit. It's different. It's interesting, though. An expanse I like just because it was modern sci-fi that was close to home. You know, it's really close. It's When you look at expanse, you're thinking maybe 100 years, maybe. Uh, maybe 150 max. Some people even say 75. No, it was, it was fun to watch. I enjoyed it. Expanse is kind of like for those who watched Babylon 5 way back when, and they would talk about all the politics back home on Earth and in the Earth system. Now take out the Babylon 5 and all the interstellar stuff, and the Expanse is essentially that world. It is. With all yeah. of the diplomatic intrigue and all of the criminal and corporate and everything, that's Expanse. It is. It really is. It's what it is. Oh, actually, Gene, the reason I liked Babylon 5 was because of all of Babylon 5 presented itself like humans, meaning that 
we went out with all of our frailties, all of our stupidity, all of our craziness, and we started going out and meeting people in the universe. And that's who the hell we are. And it's exactly how we're going to do it. It's, it's just, I don't know if we're going to have gates or how we're going to meet people, but when we meet them, it's still going to just be us. Think of it, people. Our, our world has advanced oodles and boodles in the last 6,000 years, but man himself really has not. Other than the understanding of how things work, we're still the guy out there killing people, beating them over the head with clubs for tribal shit like land, women, money, oil. Yeah, we're still the same beast. We haven't really changed any. We haven't became the enlightened species that we should be after 6,000 years of accelerated evolution. And we still are just... <sighs> How long it's going to take? Another 100,000 years, 200,000 years, 300,000 years? I can tell you this, it ain't never going to happen until we're a one-world planet. So, And you know I'm not even into that one-world or shit. <laughs> so I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know. Uh, Chris, actually, is a new Babylon 5 coming out. Oh, I seen something about the previews yesterday. I haven't actually seen it, but somebody had sent me something about the previews coming out, uh, I think, today. If I can find it, I'll play it for y'all. But uh, it, it, well, it might be one of them cartoons like they did with Star Trek. Well, Star Trek has, what, like four cartoons? The original Star Trek cartoon is Lower Decks. There's something besides that. Mm. What do you mean? Who makes the most money? Oh, I tell you what, I will give away another lightsaber tonight. Just an everyday lightsaber. If y'all can tell me which franchise makes the most money, Star Trek or Star Wars. This will be for Caller 20. Or I should say Writer 20. Yes. Uh, I, I know. Because you Star Trek and Star Wars fans are going to fight about this. <laughs> well, I'm a fan of both, so I, I know. Hmm. You met Mark Hamill. I hear he's a nice prick. I mean, a nice guy. Sorry, did I say that out loud? And I hear he's a nice guy. What What part of the... Stop it. What part of the world are you in, Martin? I'm in Michigan. Oh, yeah. That's where my uh, daughter-in-law is from, from Michigan. She's uh, from somewhere up there. Matter of fact, they were just up there visiting just recently, just before they got married. Is it snowing? Is it cold? Uh, it is not in the last couple of weeks it was back in late november and earlier but it's actually been i want to say 30s to today was 50 which for michigan in december 50 is pretty good and 30s is we'll take it we'll take it <laughs> so it, it could have been a lot colder and it was in november in november i had a couple of days i worked from home because the roads were just impossible uh, what do you mean, Lonnie? I, you're talking about, you're talking about, um, 1999. That's the series you're talking about. You remember that series, Martin? I mean, that's going way back. I, I'm afraid I'm going to offend somebody, but I absolutely feel betrayed by the series. So I. I grew up loving it because it has such great visuals. Those eagles and that moon base are just amazing models. And I couldn't wait for when I finally found the whole series available in a box set so I could sit down and watch every episode. 
And my God, those are atrociously bad. Bad writing, bad science. Yeah, <laughs> just bad. It, it's just, it's just still just as pretty as it ever was. But, but, but you know, and there was some big name actors in that damn show for it to be as bad as it was. Um, I was, I was, I was surprised. It, it, it was, no, people, it was bad. I mean, let me give just one example of the bad science. For those who aren't familiar with the show, the premise is that we buried nuclear waste on the back of the moon, and we had a base on the fa- fa- side facing us, and the nuclear waste somehow magically went hypercritical and blew up and sent the moon into space. Now, first of all, of all if it sent it up from, if it blew up in the back and the moon's facing us, why didn't it crash into us? Okay, well, maybe it wasn't a direct angle. But now the moon is hurtling through space faster than light speeds. We don't have enough nuclear waste in the entire history of nuclear waste to budge the moon. Much <laughs> more than it going faster than light speeds. But then it's, it's faster than light, goes to other stars, and then sometimes stops and hangs around in that star system for up to two weeks, and then takes off again. And every time we see the moon in any of the shots as it's going through space, it looks exactly like we see it as we're sitting here on Earth with it lit up by reflected sunlight. When your moon is in the middle of deep space between stars, there's no reflected sunlight to make it make it appear anything other than a big black rock. Pretty much, well, and that's what it. What well, do you think we call it? The dark side of the moon, because there's no light on the dark side of the moon. There is light. There is no such thing as a dark side of the moon. Well, there's not light, like like when you see with, with the double reflection you get between us and them. Yeah. When 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 the moon is facing towards the sun, t- towards us, and the sun is on the other side, the back side of the moon gets sunlight just as much as the front side does. There is no dark side. No, but I'm talking about when it's just when it was just steady, when it's just facing us, the other side's dark. Um, but when you but, get a new moon and so it's dark here, it's bright daylight on the other side. Uh Frank, I don't um I'll look, but I don't think I have any. You're talking about fear? I, I don't I don't I, I had a few of them, but I think we got rid of the last couple. No, I actually haven't read it yet. I had a couple people told me it was good, but I haven't read it yet. You can go live on the moon, buddy. I don't care. Uh, China's all over the moon right now. Yeah, they're crawling around looking at stuff. All right. So for you people who say we didn't go to the moon, because i just seen two comments go by, there's a couple things y'all can do for yourselves. Okay. One, I don't, I don't even know how you think we got Russia and China and the whole world to lie for us, but you know, maybe y'all know how we did that. But more importantly, you can actually go see the, the landers for yourself now. Yes. So China, Russia, United States, India, and what other country have taken pictures of them as they've gone by? There's actually one picture you can still see the flag in. Oh, you mean that the, the boots were different shapes? I know. That was crazy. How could that have happened? How could the boot that Neil Armstrong put on the ground had ridges in the one they said that was in the museum didn't? Did you ever think the one in the museum was just the wrong boot? Come on, NASA lost the damn space rocks for 25 years. Jesus, they're not the brightest group of people on the planet. And they should be, but they're, they're, they're not. Well, you can argue with them all you want. I seen the one you're talking about. I said that the one that was in the exposition 
had a round bottom on the bottom of the boot. And the one he stepped on a, on the moon with had ridges across the bottom of the boot. I mean, the picture's world famous. You, you can find it anywhere. But how do you know the one? Because, you know, there's more than one. In case y'all didn't know this. Uh, I've been in a couple of different of NASA's facilities. And uh, there's actually an exposition of, of Neil's landing in several different ones. So how do you know where the boot actually is? Yes, that's not the only place they had. I'm just telling you so you know. Uh, they've got one down here at the Stennis base. There's one down at Cape Canaveral. There's one in Cape Cotton. And there's one in, uh, not Cape Cotton, but there's one in Houston. And they all three have an exposition of Neil Armstrong taking the first step on the moon. Mm, yes, you didn't think about that, did you? So anyway, I'm just trying to help you all out. No, there should have been three shadows in the moon. Not two, three. Well, I know you're talking about sunlight and earthlight. Where's the other shadow? Well, the moon, the lander itself had lights on it. Yes, and they were facing down. They cost a shadow. I just thought y'all knew that, but I figured I'd tell y'all that. <laughs> There's a lot of little... Uh, yes, I did see the, the, the way the cat walked across. Okay, that was cool, but it's not real. <laughs> Jesus. Mark, you want some of these people to come live with you, man? <laughs> Oh, no, they would not be happy here. Oh, man. I don't know why y'all get to get a, the moon landing. It's, it really doesn't even matter at this point. Everybody's dead. I met I met um, Buzz Aldrin and Edgar Mitchell in Washington, D.C. Uh, about eight years ago. I was giving a lecture at the Washington Press Club. And uh, we sat down at lunch, him, along with Stephen Bissett, and I can't remember the pilot's name. It was a World War II pilot, and we discussed this in great detail. And it was so funny because I looked over at Bud at Aldrin and said, hey, I hear you said we didn't go to the moon. Is that true? And he started smiling and laughing. And uh, Edgar Mitchell goes, will you stop with the bullshit already? He said, do you know how much crap you've caused with that? He said, and, and you know, there's pictures because there's pictures from the um, – the um, not the lander, the um, what's the one that was going around the damn moon? I forgot what they called it. The orbiter. Yeah, he's pictures from the orbiter he was taking. So I was kind of like, he's like, well, you know, if people are dumb enough to believe it, they're dumb enough to believe it. He he was having a ball with it, and I was just surprised. But but they were both nice guys, and they were heroes of mine. So they were both nice guys. Uh, I never got to meet Neil Armstrong, but I've got to uh, meet some of the uh, people who I actually talked to him about so-called talking to aliens on the moon. I say so-called because I, I didn't hear it from his own mouth, guys. Yes. And there's no audio tape of it. It's only written. Doesn't mean he didn't say it. It's just reporters don't always tell the truth. Let's just be honest, okay? I would have rather heard it from Neil Armstrong's voice itself. Yes, I would have rather. And then I would have gave it more credence. And I would have said, okay, well, maybe they did tell him not to come back to the moon. Well, we've been back since. Guys, do y'all know we had, what was it? Uh, 18, 19, 20. Anyway, we had four missions still paid for when we decided not to go back to the moon. Everything was paid for. The crews were trained. Everything was paid for. We were ready to go. We just said, oh, no, we're not going back. Some people said it was because of the media. Some people said it was because of aliens. Some people just said it was because we didn't want to spend the money that we already spent. I don't know. And no one today has given me a sad. And I have asked a lot of big people about this. And no one to this day has still not given me a satisfactory entry on why we quit going. <clears throat> well, Helium 3 is there. There's a reason to be there. 
Instead of bringing space rocks back, we should have been bringing 50-pound boxes of Helium-3 back. Look it up. If y'all know what Helium-3 is, look it up. It's important. It's one of the reasons we're going to the moon. Oh, here's some stuff for, for y'all on the moon before I let Martin talk again. Um, did you know that NASA and Elon Musk are going to build a neighborhood? They didn't call it a colony. They called it a neighborhood. Yes, on the moon. <clears throat> They've already got the place picked out. And uh, they're going to start construction later ne next year. And uh, they want to use it as a stepping stone to help go to Mars. Elon wants to go to Mars. Uh, Martin and I are going to Mars with him, man. I'm just telling y'all. We need we need some peace and quiet from Earth. <laughs> you going to Mars, Martin? <laughs> I, I suspect I am too old for them to take me. I'd go in a heartbeat if they would. Well, you know, I thought that too. Well, you know, I originally joined that Swedish project when I was in my uh, early 50s, and I was surprised they took me. But I was talking with uh, one of Elon, one of their recruiters, and he said, No. He said, All we care is if you have skill. We don't care how old you are, because, you know, it's not going to be like an astronaut flight. You, you're going to be stressed going up. He said, Only going there. He said, Because when you, when you lift off from Mars, it's not even going to be stressful. He says, There's hardly any G's there. And he said, so, and the flight home's not going and coming's not going to be hard on you. It's just going to be when you initially take off from Earth. And um, he said, and he said, we've already sent 70 and 80 year olds into space. That's Elon said that. He said, if it's somebody who's useful to the colony, they don't care if you're a scientist or not, if you're a plumber, electrician, anybody who can create something that the colony needs, they want them there. And he actually came out just the other day and said, it will no longer be a one way ticket. The way they've got to have it set up over the next 50 years is they'll constantly have ships going back and forth. So if you want to go home, you can go home. So he's, he's serious. He said before he dies, he expects to have at least a million, a million and a half people living there. Uh, we'll see. We, we might see that. I mean, I'm, I'm old, but I ain't quite that old yet. Mm -hmm. I'm 105 people, yes. But I'm also part alien, so... And my species list is about 175, so I got a little ways to go yet. Uh, no, we're getting ready. We got to go on a little bit here. What you got? What, what question you got for him? No, give me a serious question. I'll give you a bullshit question. Yeah, I don't think we, we want to know what color his car is, people. <laughs> I mean, really. Well, you plan on marrying this guy or something? I mean, what's going on here? I'm actually surprised no one's asked me if he's been married. It almost that's usually y'all's first damn question. Now, see, that's a good question. So uh, Denise is Denise is writing in from Stonehenge, Nebraska. I've never even heard of Stonehenge, Nebraska. I didn't know it was such a place. Did you just make this place up? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just. Uh, anyway, she wants to know. What when when was it that you decided that you wanted to write? When was it that you knew you were actually a serious writer? And what was it that actually made you write? Oh, well, you got serious there, girl. Damn. Go ahead, Martin. I, I think that's a good way of asking the questions because there are stages involved here. In a sense, I don't know that I've ever not been wanting to be a writer. Um, I don't have great memory from my childhood years. I just, for whatever reason, it's very fuzzy. But my mom used to tell that I was telling stories about my imaginary friends before I could read, and I learned to read early. So I've always been a storyteller, and I started trying to actually get published in my teens, and I'd get a rejection and I'd give up. 
I didn't have the persistence, which is the one thing I want to say is the number one mistake people can make is giving up just because they're rejected. Yeah. Now, it's up to you what how much rejection you feel comfortable taking. Nobody says you have to do this, but I would get a rejection and give up for years and years and years. And I don't know what switch flipped in my head, but at 47, I sent out a story and got a rejection and said, well, then I'll send it somewhere else. And I started getting serious about writing and started trying to get some persistence behind the effort and then almost gave up again because I was getting too many rejections. And the very last thing I sent out was my first entry in Writers of the Future, which I didn't know much about. But three months later, I got notified that that was a finalist story, which I didn't know what that meant. And I started doing the research and then they came back like no it didn't win but jerry purnell loved your story and thought it should have won and this is when i realized that giving up was my big mistake that when i stuck stuck to it i did okay and i started sticking to it and pretty soon i started selling and pretty soon i had a third place in the contest and went out to hollywood and met mentors and friends who have now had more than 10 years of friendship with some of them all because it took me 47 years of life to realize that I didn't have to quit. But, so. but be, be, before I let you go on with, on and to talk more about this, you know, I've done a lot of interviews with you authors now, as I say, you authors, cause I'm not one. Um, I have noticed something strange and um, John gets a little irritated when I talk about it, but, most of the writers I met were, we'll just say, 37 plus and leave it at that. Uh, there were a few young ones, but for the most of them that I met were 37 plus. Anywhere from, say, 37 to 50, there was a large group of winners in that particular range. And then, of course, there was groups that were older, you know, because I think the oldest one I met was like 69. And the youngest one, I think, I think I want to say was 17. But still... Uh, it seems to be, and it, it makes me wonder why. And listening to you talk just now, it gets kind of this might be a, a common theme for a lot of these writers. It's a shame it's not a way to kind of boost the confidence or boost. It's not even a confidence thing. I don't think it's a. It's a something you, so you don't get aggravated when you get rejected. Because I've been, you know, doing radio and live TV and stuff. I've been rejected for stuff. I've had people say, "Sure, dude, whatever." Uh, I remember when I, we got the series with Netflix, it just went on for like three, four years. And it was, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, don't worry about it. And I'm like, and that shit gets old after a while. I can understand that. But of course, if you give up, you'll never get there anyway. So you've proven that just hanging in there pays off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's hard to learn that at a young age. And And part of my message now to the younger writers is be smarter than me. Because and it's it's confidence is part of it, but part of it is I think also just not caring, which is hard. But it's just not caring that okay, so that story got rejected at this magazine. I will send that story to another magazine and write another one for this magazine. Of getting to the point, and and this is so hard for creators, getting to the point where any one story at any one market doesn't matter. Just keep writing, just keep sending. And all of a sudden, when you get a rejection, it still sucks, but it's not crushing because it's, 
one more event and gee, you've got other stories you're working on and so on. And when I started getting that attitude, suddenly my response to rejections was, oh, well, and keep going. So I'm and, hoping and, I can teach younger writers to have that attitude. And, and that's, that is the correct attitude. I mean, that's the attitude you need. If you're going to be successful, you've got to say, okay, because, you know, especially when you start to really, really, like you've already on your second book, you know, I know sometimes authors get in a, a niche and they just start bam, 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 writing out books. And, um, you know, you have to be okay with, with, with saying, Hey, I was the book was rejected. And ladies and gentlemen, just because one company rejects it doesn't mean all companies will, you need to keep that in mind. But then sometimes it doesn't matter who you send it to. They're going to be like, no, thank you. Um, what do you mean? Oh yeah. I, well, I don't know. After the third rejection, I might not send it to nobody else either, but I don't really know because I'm, I'm hard headed and egotistical. So I might send it to some more people. I mean, what do you think, Martin? I mean, what, what should be the cutoff point where you said, okay, that's enough of sending this book out to people? And how many people there are actually to send it to, I guess, is the real question. Well, I, I do want to point out that I believe Harry Potter went to 17 publishers before, before it got picked up. Uh, Dune went to so many that he finally ended up sending it to Chilton's, which you may, if you've ever oh, looked yeah. on cars, you know that Chilton's is an auto repair manufacturer. Manu uh, manual place and but the chilton's he he got the attention of the guy in charge of chilton's and chilton said we don't do fiction but i love this i'm going to print this so partly it's a matter of what does it cost you to keep sending it out other That's than emotional true. investment it costs you nothing now obviously emotional investment is there on your 16th rejection you probably are saying i just can't keep going but she went on again, and the 17th, she found a market. Uh, this is one of Heinlein's rules of just keep it on the market. Stop worrying about it. Just keep it on the market. Or today, we have self-publishing, which is a very valid option. And I know people like to dump on indie books because there are bad ones, but there are bad traditional books, too. Yeah, they are. And in the meantime, uh, Hugh Howey, who wrote Wool which is a big series that is now, I think it's getting a, a TV adaptation. He's just been named as the newest uh, judge of writers of the future. Hugh Howey published Wool Independent because nobody was interested. And The Martian, I keep coming back to it. I'm sorry. I love that book. Okay. Love that movie. The Martian was originally published independent on the guy's blog. Andy Ware published chapters on his blog and people would come and read it who are science geeks and give him feedback. So he got a lot of essentially free free beta reading. Who was um I can't who was the actor in that movie? For some reason I can't think of his name. Oh I got I I can see his face. Man, I just Man, can't Taylor. yeah, I couldn't get I just couldn't pull it out of my head. Yeah. So so where was publishing these on his blog, and at one point somebody said you know, you've got all these chapters here, and it's hard to read them on a web page. Couldn't you just turn it into a Kindle book so I can read it that way? And where's like, I don't know how to make a Kindle book, but he's a programmer. He figured it out, and he put it up there, and they wouldn't let you, and they still don't. They don't let you make something automatically free on Amazon. If it's free somewhere else, they'll price match. 
But otherwise, you got to charge at least 99 cents for it. So he charged 99 cents just because he couldn't put it up otherwise, because this one guy wanted the book. And so Ware figured, like, I'm going to get 99 cents out of this. And it almost immediately became the top-selling science fiction book across all of Amazon, partly because it was cheap, but partly because it was good. So you don't have to be traditionally published to be a good book. You have to put in the effort that you would put into a traditionally published. So if you've got a book you really believe in and you can't get a publisher to pick it up, then polish the hell out of it with a good editor and get a good cover and put it up. And it's not that hard of a process. It's a learning curve, but everything is. Uh, Janet, no... Galaxy Press will not publish your book. Galaxy Press is only does L. Ron Hubbard stuff and Writers of the Future. Yep. Yeah, they don't do anything else. And actually, they only do... Um, I'm sorry. Writers of Future only... Not Writers of Future. Uh, Galaxy Press only does the sci-fi stuff. The not the fiction, not the non-fiction. Non-fiction is actually handled by another publishing group. Mm-hmm. That's just the way they do it, yes. I know that they're no, as far as the people go, they're a great bunch of people. I have, I have no problem with any of them. I like all of them. I'm friends with a good bunch of them. Uh, they've all treated me very good and take good care of me when I'm in LA with them. So, um, yes, yes, I know the elephant in the room, the elephant in the room, the elephant in the room. Okay, we'll adjust this real quick because you know I don't like talking about this. <clears throat> so, L. Ron Hubbard, yes, was he wrote Dianetics and he was a Scientologist. He passed away. David Miscavige took over and said, okay, that's that's what all y'all need to know there. As far as writers of the future, other than the fact that L. Ron Hubbard pays for the whole damn thing, there's no Scientology involved in any of it. None of the judges are, none of the winners are, none of the guests are. I mean, guests because they have a big gala and they bring all kind of fa famous people in. They're not. This is not, and, and I get mad when people ask me about this because I just did a lecture in a college just recently. And the guy got really nasty with me about it. And I said, no, it, it, it's just, it's not part of it. He he did this, Elon did this because he wanted to pay forward all of the stuff that he got. If you go back and look at the man's career before he was in the Navy, after he was in the service, the whole nine yards, he had a very successful career and he had a lot of fun in his life. And he just looks like he wanted to pay it forward. He didn't say, oh, you got to be a Scientologist to win the contest. No, you don't. They don't care. Now, actually, the contest is a big Australian conspiracy. Yes, there you go. It's even better. We have way more Australian winners than we ought to have. Yes, including Blue Eyes, man, my friend. I got to tell you, Mr. Blue Eyes, Chris, I met this guy. He got me in trouble because we, we didn't even come. I met him Friday. I got in. I got in off the plane. We, we had a drink. He said, let's go out. And we took uh, three of the UK winners with us. And we didn't pay for anything all night because once people found we were from different parts of the world, they were just buying us drinks all night. These poor guys, these poor UK guys, they were, <laughs> it was, I mean, the bars had closed at two on, on the weeknights and they was about to pass out. Uh, me and Chris were out there, I think, dawn. And uh, I remember walking in, they were, everybody was getting up, going to breakfast. We were going to bed. <laughs> like, Chris, man, you done got me in a world of shit. Uh, it's a lot of fun. No, it's a lot of good people. I'm, I'm telling you, it has nothing to do with any of that. There's, there's no conspiracy. There's no negativity. They don't care what sex you are. They don't care what color you are. They don't care what part of the world you're from. We had a Ukrainian winner. He talks faster than I do, by the way. <laughs> 
Oh no, he he makes me look like I'm talking in reverse. Actually, I'm gonna play that in just a minute. But um, what's that? Uh, what was that, Stephanie? The single biggest piece of advice you can give to any new author? I'd, I'd say it's not give up. What do you think, Martin? Don't give up is my first one, and that is probably the biggest one. Uh, but you also got to keep reading. If you don't fill your brain, you can't have anything to plant your own ideas in. So read what you like, write what you like. And if you're not reading, you've got basically you're turning your brain into a desert. Uh, yeah, I mean, you got you. Well, that's why I like to listen to stuff. Mm -hmm. I like, and, and when I get time, I like watch lots of the sci-fi. Uh, I do. I like. I like. I'll, I'll watch lots of sci-fi. Um, of course, my wife wants to just shoot me, but um, no. Actually, you know what I'm watching right? I forgot about this little three, 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 uh, three season series called Defiance. Uh, I had forgot about it because it's kind of a wanky little series from a video game, and uh, I caught it the other night again. I, said, I know I like it. It's, it's not. I mean, I wouldn't. If I had it rated a one to ten, I'd give it like a six and a half. But it's fun to watch. Yeah. You, you're talking about Serenity, Firefly. That's a whole different thing. Serenity is on a different level of television because it wasn't – Serenity was a Western in space is what Serenity was. It, originally, that's what Star Trek was. Most of y'all don't know, but Gene Roddenberry used to write um, Westerns before he wrote Star Trek. And he basically wrote the same way with a little lesson tucked in there in the whole nine yards. It was just Westerns. So basically, Star Trek was just a Western. Um, kind of a soap opera western at that. I love the original Star Trek. I'm not hating on it. I'm just telling you what Gene Roddenberry was doing before he wrote Star Trek. Every, every, pretty much everybody in your mama turned him down, right? When he when he went to go sell this originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can, can you believe any every publisher, every network in the world wanted to, must want to kick themselves in the ass now when they look at the size of Star Trek. There is somebody out there, and I don't know, probably dead by now, but there's somebody who I hope got the biggest, fattest gold watch in history because Star Trek was originally produced by Desilu Studio. Yep, Desi and Lucy Arnaz, i.e. Lucille Ball. Lucy's probably so old that many of your audience don't even know that she was she was practically the face of TV comedy for a long time. A long time. And this, they they put together a, an agreement to do the Star Trek show, and they also did this other little thing this 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 TV spy series called Mission Impossible. Two yeah. small little things, and then they arranged a deal to sell Desilu Studios to Paramount, although I think it was Gulf and Western at the time. Yeah, I think it was, That's actually. Paramount now. But she, they went and sold this show, including those two shows, to Gulf and Western Paramount. And those two franchises, by themselves, have grossed more than $2 billion. Whoever was the guy who put together that deal to buy Desilu... Has made Paramount one hell of a lot of money. Uh, Jackie, more than likely, Desilu got sold because uh, Desi Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball uh, split up. Yeah, yeah, that's probably why it got sold. 
Well, Desi, that was her husband. If you if you have ever watched Lucille Ball, the guy who plays Ricky is actually her real husband. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, I was. I am that old. What can I tell you? I'm that guy. If you've ever watched Expanse, I'm that guy. Mm-hmm. Just so y'all know, I'm not that other guy. I'm that guy. You'll only know what I'm talking about if you watch the damn series. That's all I can tell you. There's just one little scene in there where he says, "You're not that guy," and then. The guy leaves and he turns around and he said, but I am that guy. Mm-hmm. Then he blows the guy's brains out. Uh, <laughs> just tell you, I'm telling you, there's a lot of good stuff in it. There are some really boring parts of that series, but there is some really good shit in there. You mean Babylon? I like Babylon because uh, what's his face? Who wrote it? He, he was, yes, he had a way of dropping little pearls of wisdom here and there and there and here. I mean, he, there's some serious, serious, uh, philosophy going on in Babylon 5 in certain places, especially when dealing with the lynch. You would every now and then just drop some shit on your head like, wait, where'd that come from? It, it's it's they, Well, they just looked at the universe differently, that's all. It's a good series. It's a fun series to watch. It's five. It's a, a five-year series. Uh, I think uh, I think it's 120 episodes or something. It's back in the days when there was real seasons with 20, <laughs> 25 episodes a year and shit like that. Yeah. I liked it. Uh, the movies, some of the movies were okay. Some of the movies were kind of dumb. It just depends. I mean, I, I like Babylon 5 in general, so the Rangers, it was never, they were never going to be successful. No. Because they needed to use, what's his name, Son. Sheridan. If Sheridan's son would have been the Ranger, then it might have been a little bit different. Yes, but that's not what they did. Who's my favorite? You really want to know who my favorite characters are in Babylon 5? I'll tell you this. They're not Sheridan and they're not the Lynn. How's that? It's Jakar. Yes, Jakar. I love Jakar. And Londo. That's my two favorite characters in the series. Especially because in the beginning, they were just no good, no good SOPs. <laughs> That's what they were. It was fun watching them grow. I mean, they out of, out of the growth process, them two probably had the biggest growth process of everybody on the series. And there was there was two captains. There was a first captain or commander who got transferred, and then the captain came in. Yes, other than that, you need to watch it. Again, I like it because it feels more like what life is today: bickering, bitching, politics, cutting back behind deals, you know, little wars here and there. Well, until you get into the shadow one, and it's just badass. Anyway, go watch and see. Um, you know what? Hold on a second. This I think this is a cartoon, but we'll pop this up for y'all real quick. Uh, let's see. Add the stage. Dun, 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 dun. We just big thing out. The, ah, come on, get out of the way. And let's see what we got here. I was there at the dawn of the third age. This is an Interstellar News Network special report. Two years after winning the Shadow War. Captain John Sheridan, president of the Interstellar Alliance, like is Sheridan. leaving Babylon 5 for what many expect to be the last time. I don't need an Interstellar Alliance. You're my universe, Dylan. I love you. A friend of mine once said, the future is all around us, waiting in moments of transition to be born in moments of revelation. This is just such a moment. Fire this baby up. Oh. What kind of energy does this facility use? Tachyons. Oh, crap. Ah! 
Where the hell am I? Yes, I'm stuck in time. Moving between timelines, universes, realities. The longer you stay out of your own timeline, the more you'll start sliding in parallel worlds. So how do I fix it? You have to get back to Babylon 5. Losing the Shadow War wasn't your fault. Wait, we lost the war? <sighs> On the positive side, at least we have a good view of the show, eh, Shadowdun? This is Babylon 5. We are under attack. Do you know what a last stand is? You just joined one. Activate destruct sequence. Destruct sequence? Are you feeling all right? This isn't just one of those I'm having a bad day things. I am totally in a mood to blow some stuff up. Everything ends. I'm not afraid. Bring it. John? Stay back! It's happening again. I'm coming unstuck in time. Zathras. Why? No one listens to Zathras. No one listens to Zathras. You look like someone in need of a friend. Friend. <laughs> anyway, that's a cartoon version. I had no idea what it was going to be, so now y'all know there is a cartoon version of Babylon 5 coming out. Um, will I watch it? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Maybe if I'm home one night really, really, it's early, early in the morning, I'm bored out of my mind. Yes, I probably will. I don't know. Actually, from what we saw in that preview, that just takes of different parts of Babylon 5, yes. Third Space was a movie. Yeah. And then being unstuck in time, that was actually another movie, or, or yes, another movie and part of the series. Mm. No, if y'all watch it, let me know. Send it over. Tell me what you're, what you're watching. Yes. I don't, I don't, you mean right now? I don't know, Martin. What do you have a, a, a sci-fi series that, that right now that's your favorite? I have a hard time with right now as a favorite. Um, I don't. I don't. It's not that there's not some decent ones out there. I just. I don't know, man. It's a tough one. There's one on Prime that I really like, but it's not going to appeal to the 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 boom blast action fans. Um. And now I'm trying to remember the name. I think it's like Night Skies. It's Sissy Spacek and um, I forget the guy's name. Are a couple in a small farm area out in the Midwest. And very deep in their basement is a portal to another world. I think I think I might have seen that. And it's, it's again, it's a quiet movie that our series that develops over time there are threats there are dangers but it's not about the fights it's about the situation and the characters how they react to it and the secrets that there are lots of secrets because it's not the only portal and not everybody knows about these and people are starting to try to chase them down so action comes in through that but it starts with Two ordinary people that have a portal in their basement that they're not sure how it got there, but it's special. Mm. It's something they don't want to share the secret with everybody else. Check it out, guys. Let us know what you think. You know, in the near future, we'll probably do a show. We'll invite a couple of authors on, maybe a couple of illustrators, and we'll have a little four for all. What's but I don't, I don't know, guys. I don't really have a favorite right now. Uh, I did like the episode of uh, Strange New Worlds where Kirk and what's her name went back in time. For some reason, that episode appealed to me. I, oh, no, don't, don't get me wrong. I like Strange New Worlds, people, but it's not... How can I say this? 
it hasn't uh, just just reached out and pulled me in. I'm still kind of sitting on the fringes watching it. Now, it practically three years for next generation to get really good. That's what I'm saying. So it's, it's you know, we'll, we'll see what's going to happen. And remember, we're only getting 12 episodes a year with these people. So it makes it harder to really get into a series when you get so few episodes. The whole problem with Doctor Who, oh, I did see the new Doctor. Yes, I did. I'm surprised they left David Tennant alive. My son said they left him alive in case the new guy is a flop. So they've got a fallback so they don't have to go two years without a doctor. I don't know. Yes, I did see they put a little wokeness in the doctor. They've been putting a little wokeness in the Doctor Who for a while now. Uh, it started with uh, Peter, what's his name? Um, Capaldi. Capaldi. They got really woke in that, in that particular group and went forward with it. Come on, they went back and... and yes, it's just... Well, you know... You know, it's like when they went to uh, back to what is it, Alabama, Montgomery. Okay, if you went to school in the United States, you know what that is. So there wasn't any real reason, unless they're trying to educate people in the UK about how how it changed, how blacks changed in the United States. I don't, I don't understand that episode. It just doesn't make any sense. What's a big thing here, especially in the South? Everybody knows it, so. It's not like it's gone away. It's it's just part of our history. So that, that one kind of disappointed me a little bit. Some of the stuff with Bill Potts was a little bit disappointing. Well, you, I could give a shit less if she's gay. That's, 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 oh, and then stupid me. Besides, I've been watching some of the classic Doctor Who's. Man, don't go back and watch classic Doctor Who's if you, if you like the new series. Just don't. <laughs> I didn't realize how many liberties the new Doctor series take. First off, did you know? Because Gallifrey existed all the way up until the new series, mm-hmm. um, so they hadn't killed Gallifrey off yet. So you see Gallifrey in a lot of those series, which is, makes a big difference in the way it plans out. I mean, you have Time Lords interfering with shit. It makes for more more fun in the series. Then you've got other stuff going on that 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 they did. I did notice. Quite a few of the new episodes were just copies of some of the older episodes. One of the reasons the old Doctor Who's got away with more is because it wasn't a one-day thing. It was so they would have like four days of, um, you know, four weeks of the same series. It would, I mean, the same show would sometimes go four or five weeks, so they could really get into a, a show. Where here they got forty minutes or so forty-five minutes, and they've got to get everything done in forty-five minutes. I like Dave. I don't, he's not my favorite. He's he's to me he's number two. He's either number two or number three. I still like Tom Baker, still my favorite doctor. I grew up with Tom. He's probably going to always be my favorite doctor. Everybody's got their favorite doctor. I don't know. You got a favorite doctor, Martin? Um, I liked Tennant for a while. I actually liked, what was his name, Eccleston before him. Yes. See, he was – now, he could have been my favorite, but they they gave him one series – I mean, one season, and that was it. Because he was an actor, actor. I would have liked to see him stick around for a while. Yeah. But but I, I just, somewhere in the middle of the Tenant era, I started realizing that there were some overall plot beats that they were just repeating and repeating and repeating. And I just got bored that that, that everything was impossible until five minutes before the end of the episode when the doctor would get a determined look on his face and the dramatic music would come up and in five minutes he would do the thing that had just been impossible for the past 40 minutes. Yep. 
Because the story says this is when he does the dramatic music and, and does the impossible. And, you know, when Star Trek does stuff like that, people rightly give it shit. That Jordy yeah. is pulling a weapon out of nowhere to solve the problem. And, and, and Star Doctor Trek fans do give him shit, you know? Yeah. And, and Doctor Who just reached a point where there was a while there where he could solve anything. It was just a matter of waiting and waiting and waiting. I started getting bored up until almost the end of the Tenant era where all of a sudden, and I think they must have been doing it deliberately. I think they realized what was going on. There started being real consequences and problems he couldn't solve just by dramatic music. Yes, real problems. The, the Mars mission that went and suicided when he brought them home because they weren't supposed to survive. That, that was that was a good ending, too. That was a twisted ending. That was a good ending. A yeah. lot of people hated that ending, but I thought it was it was because she was supposed to die. And, and he was learning that he has limits to even his power. Yes. But but the middle of the tenant era is like, there's no limits. It's just a matter of how many minutes are in this episode. That's how long it will take to, to make this problem go away. Unless it's a two-parter, Unless then it's going to take yeah. that many minutes. It's um, it, it it got it got you know, and then we got Matt Smith came in, and, and there was some good episodes with Matt, and then there was just some some you know, just boring ones. And then I was surprised when everybody picked Amy, I mean not Amy Pond, uh, Donna, as the most popular companion. I was like, really? Uh, I mean, Donna's not a bad companion, but most popular companion. I was. I was kind of, I was kind of caught off guard, you know, but I noticed they always say the doctor Donna when they say she's the most popular companion. So, and, and I see they use that in the new three miniseries they did uh, with the, you know, the doctor Donna as a way to get out her, her powers. But now what's that Bernie? You mean Rose? You mean Rose? You're talking about Donna's kid, Rose? So you heard what she said. She picked her name. Okay. Technically, she's not a girl. Yes. By the standards, she's not a girl. But by the show, she is. Uh, they didn't call her a trans. I, I don't I don't think that's the word they're using. I think that's a bad word. They use some other words now. I know what they are. I just can't. I, I'm not doing a news show, so they're not in my head. But um, did it aggravate me? No, it really didn't bother me. It bothered a lot of people, though. I got a lot of email over it, especially in a news show. A lot of people got cranky about it. Um, well, you know. What do you mean? Can you? So for the audience, listen, can you tell the difference if she's a boy or a girl? I can, but I, I wasn't really looking for it in the beginning. That's not what I was after. I was just watching the series. And then they just kind of snuck that in there. Mm-hmm. So Donna had a child, and her child was uh, different. So we'll leave it at that. Just just watch the series and, and make your own judgments. I'm not judging anybody. It's not my job to judge anybody. Uh, it's my job is just to watch the series. And David Tennant in there was how can I say, maybe withdrawn might be a better word. I don't I don't know. He just. He seemed out of sorts for his character. Maybe it was his interaction with Donna, but I didn't find the three to be, I don't know how to say this. They're not horrible episodes. I just, I just, I don't know. They just didn't feel like the original David Tennant, I guess is what I'm trying to say. 
Well, I don't know. Oh, what you mean? What's my favorite episode of the new Doctor Who? Probably, um, maybe when they meet Shakespeare. Between Shakespeare and um, Van Gogh are two of my favorites. There's two different companions. We have Martha Jones when when they meet uh, Shakespeare, and it was uh, who was it when they met? Uh, it was Amy when they met? Yeah, it was Amy when they met Van Gogh. I don't know something about them two episodes. I like. There's some other ones I like. I like the one uh, where they show Gallifrey Falls, and the original one of the original doctors, Tom Baker, was there as the museum's curator. I like that one. I don't know. You got any favorite Doctor Who episodes? I, I don't. I really don't know. I mean, I just watch them as well. I really do. I I haven't watched in probably five years. Um, the, there were some of the early Tenant episodes that I thought were really engaging stories, but before they became repetitive, yeah, fucking boring. But I I really felt like when Eccleston first appeared, when they revitalized the series. And the whole interaction with him and Rose as the companion who's completely clueless, they they did such a good job in those opening couple of episodes of saying, this is what you've been missing for the past 40 years. This is, this is catching you up to date and getting you up to speed. And bam, now we're launching this series again. I think artistically they did about the perfect thing as witness the fact that it's been going and going and going ever since. They accomplished a lot there. They did, and 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 season one was what got me watching it again. Uh, well, we say season one because it's just season one of the new series. People, it's not actually season yeah. one. It's um. Oh no, actually, y'all can go look at this for yourself. On three different occasions, is an old Doctor Who. They say you cannot change sexes. Uh, the Gallifreyans say that. Oh yes, my friends. <laughs> but they also said you couldn't have more than 12 incarnations. So. Yes, but that was they that was a given. They gave that to him. That's the time lords gave him that. Uh Yeah, but once, I, once for some ret reason. retrofitting, you can retrofit anything. Well, yeah, that that's what they did, but I mean, well no, there's actually guys there's more than that. There's several things if you go watch the old Doctor Who uh that the new Doctor Who just took liberties on, especially when it comes to dealing with the Gallifrey. Um uh, mm -hmm. Well, that's what they did. So with the end of the original series and the start of the new series, the time in between is when, uh, what's his name, Bill Hurt? Is that his name, William Hurt? The doctor that destroyed Lord. Gallifrey. Yeah, the, guy, he, the one that destroyed Gallifrey. That's when he existed. That's when everything was destroyed. Or so it was, because it changes so much in the new series, you don't actually even know what for Gallifrey is anymore. If it's no. destroyed, if it's in a time bubble, I mean, it just <clears throat> they got a little sloppy with that after a while. Oh, one of my favorite characters is the old guy. You talking about Don as the grandpa? Yeah, I like him for some reason. Mm -hmm. uh, he's just he's just funny. No, he's, he's he was just a funny old guy. Yeah, uh, the Ood, the Ood. You know, I don't know if the Ood was in the old series or not. I'll tell you one thing: the freaking Daleks don't look any different than they did then. Uh, that is just funny. The Cybermen have gotten a little more Cybermen looking, and there was lots of other enemies that we haven't seen emerge in the new Doctors yet. 
Uh, they just brought the toy maker in, so there's there's a there's a lot of scary shit in the old Doctor Who. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the problem for the old Doctor Who is is the stories are really good. It's just unfortunately these uh, special effects in most of them are just you, you just it's just horrible. Yeah, yeah, not in all of them, but most of them, yes. But if you pay attention to the story. Well, no, that's the thing. You can learn more about Gallifrey watching the old series than you could ever learn in the new series because they don't talk about it. But in the old series, Gallifrey was alive and involved and engaged in the Doctor's life. Matter of fact, the third Doctor got banned to Earth his entire time because uh, he pissed off the Gallifreyans. Yeah, they stuck his TARDIS so it could only move back and forward and forward on Earth. It couldn't go anywhere else. Yeah, there, there was a huge, huge, huge cosmology around Gallifrey and everything that it evolved and mostly got just dumped with the new series. It did. And and they justified it that, that, okay, there's been a time war and everything's changed now. So I gave them credit for that, but then it's, well, the only thing that's really changed is no more Gallifrey because because the time war meant that there's no more Daleks and we see how long that lasted. I know. Oh, Jesus, they're all over the place. Uh, every time you turn around, there's a, a whole bunch of them again. I mean, the, actually, those episodes where they stole Earth were pretty decent, but that's all Daleks. I mean, that's the whole series. Is. Well, they say that the Daleks are almost more popular than Doctor Who in England. They might be. And I, I hate to say this, but the new series has tried a little too hard to get into the American's heart. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, you know, Americans like Doctor Who not because you're here, people. It's because you're over there. That's why we like it. Is we like the stupid British stuff. That's that's the whole point. Um, when I first started watching Doctor Who, some of that dry British humor is actually what brought me along. Uh, when you try to make it American, we're Americans. You can't do American like we can. <laughs> Just know it. You know, like like when uh, there is one funny one when they land in Nixon's uh, Oval Office. And Amy's going to run out there. And he said something about guns. And she said, no, no, these are Americans that she runs back. Because Americans will shoot your ass. Um, or like when we're, when, when, when they're in, what is, what is that TV series? I think it was Rush Hour when they're in uh, France. And the guy's driving them around. And he's talking about how Americans like to shoot shit up. That's not exactly true, people. But, you know, we like to see shot, shit shot up. We don't actually want to shoot shit up ourselves. I do own a gun. I actually own more than one. Not like I used to. When I was young, I had uh, uh, seven rifles, four shotguns, five pistols. All together, I had like 30, 31 different types of guns. I have two now, both pistols. Yes. Well, now I got three. I bought my wife a shotgun so she can shoot dumbasses. Yes. Um, oh, no. She's a good shot. She has no problem shooting a 12-gauge. Nope. <laughs> Not even a little bit. Well, we live. we live – Sort of rule, sort of not. It's hard to explain. Uh, one more question. What you, what you got for us? Theresa, where are you actually from, Theresa? The Mediterranean. Okay, that could be anywhere. That could be Greece. That could be Italy. That could be one of the Mediterranean islands. Come on, give me, give me something better. Someplace warmer than here. Yes. So, no, what, what, really, what part of Mediterranean are you talking about? Sicily? I got relatives in Sicily. Uh, I got relatives all over Italy. Uh, so what do you got for us? Okay. Well, no, I'll ask him. So she's asking, do you think that that winning writers of the future did it help your career any 
Did it give you any like boost in prestige or, or did it even make you feel any better? Well, those are good questions. It, it definitely felt like vindication because the judges included writers that I knew well from their work and they're saying I'm worthy. Um, and it was a lot of, of, of extravaganza at the gala and everything. But I have to be honest, it took me a year to figure out what effect it really had on my career. Yeah, I could see that. Though. Volume 31 was the first one where they did a coordinated campaign to try to sell enough copies to make bestseller lists, and we did. And so for Volume 32, they had three of us, Carrie and Steve and myself, come back out to help teach the best-selling workshop to the next generation. So I come back a year later, and I'm like, I'm talking to all these judges, and they all remember me. And they all know what's been going on in my career. They all know about my story today and Paul that's just come out. They have been following my career. And I suddenly realized that, I'm sorry, I'm 60. I wasn't then, but I'm 60 now. Back then still, I was a cynic. I've been through corporate rah-rah ceremonies for all my career. And people tell you all the great things that are going to happen. And then tomorrow it's an ordinary day. Yeah. And this contest tells you that they care about your career. They're going to be following it. They're going to help help promote you that all these judges want to help you, that they'll answer your questions and everything. And I wrote it up as just rah-rah cheerleading and didn't take it seriously. And a year later, all of the judges that I talked to know what I've been up to. And some of them are buying my stories now. And some of them are helping me with stories that they meant it. And I wasted a year of that because I didn't believe it because I was too cynical. It's the connections, the mentors you get that you will then be able to learn from and eventually work with. Uh, Mike Resnick bought stories from me. Kevin J. Anderson and I wrote a book together on, on dictation for authors. All of these connections came out of the contest that maybe I'd have made them eventually, even without the contest. But it's all of these people in this this vicinity, this hotel and these offices for a week straight and you get a chance to talk to them and learn from them and then get to know you. That's huge. Uh, Pete, uh, Kevin J. Anderson, who wrote Stranger Tides. If you're not familiar with Stranger Tides, if you've ever heard of any of those stupid pirate movies that Johnny Depp was in, that's those movies. Uh, that's actually Tim Powers. Oh, it is Tim Powers. I'm sorry. I got it back ass words. I apologize. No, no, because I knew better because I was talking with Tim last time I was there about actually Stranger Tides because I uh, he, he gave me more detail about how it all went down. Yep. Well, no, in the beginning, they just kind of screwed him. And Dune stuff and a uh, lot of his own series as well. And um, so Kevin, Kevin is everywhere. He's also a publisher and Kevin is one who dictates his writing. And eventually I became convinced to try it out. Now I, I can dictate 5,000 words a day every day I drive to and from work. Mm. And because I learned from Kevin how to do this. Actually, Jimmy, I met, uh, I met Kevin Anderson a couple of years back. But last year I actually got to spend some time, some quality time with him and Dean Wesley Smith. He, uh, 
Kevin was talking about he's good friends with the lead singer of Rush, uh, who had gotten cancer. And uh, he actually took me the time and uh, walked us through what, how it all went down and how things happened. And nothing I'm going to talk or share with y'all people. But uh, no, one of these days, I'm, uh, I've actually got it all down on paper. One of these days, I'll write it up into a, a form and give it to him. And if he's fine with releasing it, well, if not, I won't. Well, because it was a private conversation. I would just, I would just happen to be pervy, and I, and he knows, like all of the judges over there know, I'm not going to put something on air without someone's permission, because I'm not there for that. I'm not negative press. I'm actually there for positive press. That's what I'm there for. And, yeah, I uh, expect he'll be fine with it because he talks very publicly about it. But you're, you're absolutely an honorable person the way you're going about it. Yeah, well, I just figured it's better. You know, I told John about it, and I, I'm almost through writing up about it, and I said, well. You know, and Dean was there, and we it was a, it was it really it was just a two way conversation. I was just sitting there having a cocktail, listening, <laughs> and um, you know, every now and then I'd say something because I was there bugging Dean about something about books when he just said, "He said, Joe, just write the damn thing, then come bug me." I said, "Okay." <laughs> well, it was something that a bunch of rookies were. Damn, last year the rookies just didn't. They were scared last year. They didn't want to talk to the the, the judges. They didn't want to talk to me. They were just a very inverted group last year. Uh, unusually so. Unusually so. It's true because you know I've had I've had the pleasure to work with five groups, and most of the time everybody wants to get they want to get their press things done, they want to get their stuff done, they want to spend a lot of time with the judges, and and I've become like a bridge now for a lot of the people who are scared to go directly to the judge, but they'll come talk to me. I'm like, well, who you want to talk to? I'll introduce you, you know. And the judges don't mind because they know I'm not going to bring anybody stupid, so uh, and it works better that way. And that way, if I walk up and the judge busy, I said, hey, look, these three want to meet you, but I see you're busy. I'll tell them to come back and see you later on. And they're happy. I'm happy. Everybody's happy. And eventually, these people get to talk to them. And I mean, and I, it, it's hard to make outsiders understand how much attention these judges actually give these winners. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really – it's like Kevin Jay last year for his birthday. He's, he's got him out with lunch with him. Yep. You know, I was like, I was like, you crazy. Why are you bringing it? I said, why don't you tell people leave you alone, man? <laughs> but literally, I mean, they were out with lunch with him. I said, you know, it was, it was interesting to see him out there handling him and talking to him. And um, there's a lot it, to be learned. You, you said it earlier, pay it forward is what the contest is all about. And that's what matters to all of these judges. Now, obviously they are paid for their service to the contest, doing the judging and everything. But they are participating because every one of them has had mentors help them get into the business. They are paying it forward. And so it really is their reason for being there is to meet these winners. But it's hard to convince people of that. So, yeah, you got to sometimes prod them a little bit that, that when are you going to have another chance to talk to Kevin? Talk to him today. Yeah, yeah, talk to him while they're there. No, I'm telling you, people, I have not seen any judges get aggravated with anybody. Nope, not one time. Dave Wolverton got aggravated with me one time. Because <laughs> I told the new class that, yes, they really mean it. They really want to help you. But I might, there are times I won't contact Dave because I'm worried he's too busy. And he stood up in the back of the room and said, don't listen to him. You can always contact me. <laughs> But I try to get it across too. Sometimes, it, it, you know, if you see somebody in the middle of a conversation with four or five people, don't go over there and bug them unless you just want to get in on the conversation and go listen. And and I've watched, you know, over the years that some winners are smarter than others. Like um, I was hanging out with Tom Wood and uh, uh, Larry. Um, 
which Elmore. is last Elmore. And we were in Larry's room, actually. And there's little young guys up there with us. And he's pretty much following uh, Tom and Larry around like he's a little puppy or something. Smart guy. He ended up getting a job with uh, Tom. Yeah. Uh, he's a talented artist. And he got into the conversations. But for the most part, he didn't get into the three-way conversations that we were having because we were a bunch of old guys. And he's a youngster. And uh, so he actually showed proper respect, which all three of us appreciated. So that, mm-hmm. that helped him even more. So there are some of them out there that are pretty smart and know how to get in. And then there's some of them are just scared. And I tell them all the time, when, when, when I, when I, as I'm talking to people doing the, the week, so I'll, I'll actually ask to get on stage once or twice just say, hey, look, this is what I'm here for. And uh, I need y'all to come up and, and set up a time to get interviewed. Because at the last day, I do a little hour lecture with everybody. But um, in the end, you know, you, you, they just got to be made to understand that's what they're there for. They're there to meet these people, learn from these people, and hopefully become a famous sci-fi writer so Joe's got some fucking good TV to watch. <laughs> okay. I have a vested interest in this. I'm tired of this crappy TV we've been having to watch since COVID came along. Uh, there's nothing left to watch. Oh, somebody said, oh, there's all kinds of new stuff. Really? I said, we had three years of COVID. Nothing was produced. And then we had a year of striking. I said, it'll be a year before we see anything new, and, and that's going to probably be crap because it's going to be rushed. Yeah, whatever, people. Seeing is believing. I ain't seen nothing good, so uh, I I like Star Trek just fine, but I, I don't. It's not earth shattering sci fi to me. It's it's part of a legacy. I, I want to see some new, something that you know. It's like the first time I seen Ender's Game. I, I didn't think Ender's Game was gonna be a good movie. So oh, this is gonna be a crappy ass movie. And then they twisted it about two thirds of the way to the movie. It was well worth watching the movie just because of that part. Um, you mean Mockingbirds? I'm not. I'm not. I don't dislike Mockingbird. I'm just not a big fan. And I'm not anti it. I mean, I don't hate it or anything. It's like it's like asking me to watch Barbie. <laughs> well, I don't hate Barbie. My sister had Barbies, but do I really want to watch Barbie? No. So anyway, we gotta go. Oh, Oppenheimer. I would. I would tell anybody to watch Oppenheimer because I'm a big science geek nerd. I got a bachelor's in science, people. Of course, I'm going to tell you to watch it. Give me a break. (laughs) I'm a geek at heart. I can't help myself. I like science. Come on. Why would I interview people like Michio Kaku, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Steve K, um, Dr. Levette and the Cosmic Pulse Theories? Why else would I do that? They have nothing to do with anything else I'm working on. I just like talking to these guys. And both Stephen Hall, I mean, uh, let's see, both. Both uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Michio Kiku were quite impressed with me. They they were amazed that a radio show host knew the physics that I knew. They were just like, I still remember Michio. He's like, are you sure you didn't go to school for this? He said, man, you know a lot of this. And he said, you're quoting shit out of, out of the universes of Nutshell, which is Stephen Hawking's book. And uh, I said, I just like science. I said, I can't help myself. And then when I introduced him to the stepping stone theory, I have actually heard him use this theory now. On 10 or 15 of it shows Stepping Stone Theory, people, is how we're going to get into space. Yes, which we're already starting. So uh, we'll put a colony on the moon. Then we'll put a, a, a landing platform out in Zone 11. Zone 11 is an area between the moon and Mars where there's very little uh, radiation at all. would make a great place to launch ships from because it's, it lets us allow what they call the solar wind through the middle of our solar system. Yeah, we just recently found out that we can boost the speeds of our jets, our rockets, because there's a thing that runs right through the middle of our solar system. Well, you would call it wind on Earth. I don't exactly know what the hell it is, but I don't think it's a wind in the way you think of wind. 
but it was interesting to see that. So they're talking about that. Of course, we're going to put a colony on Mars. We're going to have all kind of people out of the asteroid belt. I mean, come on. We just found an asteroid that's worth more than the entire planet. Yes, people. One asteroid is worth more than everything on this planet today. Just recently before that, they had found a nickel iron asteroid with the pieces of gold in it that was probably worth $100 trillion. They're going to be all over this stuff. So you're going to have colonies out there. You're going to be out there. Eventually, you know, we think we found life on, was it Escalades, how you pronounce that, around Saturn? Uh, they're pretty sure there's probably going to be life on one of at least one of Jupiter's moons and two of Saturn's moons. And, of course, we'll establish bases on those. Eventually, they want to go to Mars now because they think there might be something on Mars. I mean, not Mars, um, Pluto. So we'll have a colony out there. So at that point, we're actually 2.65 light years out, I think. Uh, so eventually, they'll put something out in the Oort cloud on the other side of the Oort cloud. That puts us at almost three light years. And then you've got about a light year and a half between us and Proxima at that point. So you put, a, you put a base at the end of the Oort cloud, then you put another base 0.75 light years out, which puts you only 0.7 light years from Proxima. So then, bam, you're there. It's called the stepping stone theory. You don't have to have faster than light technology. Oh, it'll take time to get there. You'll, you'll be, you're talking years, but every place will be a base where you can stop, change over, refuel, pick up a different ship, pick up new passengers. So you're not all stuck all the time on the same ship or in hyperspace or, or, or in a hypersleep or any of that. Yes. Keiko was quite impressed with him. He talks about it all the time now. And until we either come up with a gate technology or faster than light speed engines, that's how we're going to explore. And don't don't get all bent out of shape. Um, they did make the, the galaxy bigger now. It was 100,000 light years across. Now it's 160,000 light years across. But look at it this way. In 340,000 light years, we can explore the entire known galaxy. That's it. Y'all think, oh, God's forever. Well, no, not in the grand scheme of humans. That's nothing. In one billion years, not only can we explore the entire galaxy, but we can colonize the entire galaxy and actually start making progress to start moving towards uh, Andromeda, which is, what? how far is Andromeda right now? A billion years away or something? Uh, yeah, people, eventually, eventually Andromeda is going to eat us. Just like we're eating, um, what's it? Uh, what do we eat right now? The, the dragon galaxy. Um, I forgot what it's called. Yeah, we're actually eating more than one galaxy, by the way. But we're eating a big one right now that's deposited in red dwarf stores all around Earth. So some people think it deposited Earth here. Like they think that's where we came from. Uh, Sagittarius galaxy. That's what it is. Yeah, we're eating it, and eventually Andromeda is going to eat us. <laughs> so. Just hope you're not around for that one. Martin Martin will be back. He'll be his 66 reincarnation by then. <laughs> uh, we got to go, guys. We really did. We went right, way over. You can ask him that next time he's on if he believes in reincarnation. All of that all of that new age stuff, you can ask him next time he's on. How's that? No, because we'll be here for two years trying to answer all those questions. No. You should have brought that up at the beginning of the show. But we've got to go. Any place you want to tell him, anywhere you want to tell him to go or visit or hang out or look at anything? Uh, shoemaker.space. Oh, my blog is there. Uh, one of my plugins has crashed, so it's kind of a little clunky today, but that's where all my stuff is. So there you go, guys. Shoemaker.space. I know every time I say shoemaker, I want to say shoemaker levy. I know I can't help myself. And since his first name Martin, I want to go Martin, Martin Shoemaker Levy because that's what it was, man. Uh, anyway, we got to get out of here. Uh, Martin, I thank you. I appreciate you coming on and hanging out with us tonight. 
John, Gene, everybody in chats, I'm glad to see y'all in there. You know, try to use uh, the um, at least try to use the YouTube chats in the future. Uh, I'd rather y'all be there. It's easier to watch because it scrolls right in front of me right here. On that note, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to United Public Radio and the Authors Quill. If you have any guests, guests, guests that you'd like to have on, you can write to me or you can write to Michelle DeRoche. Um, Carmen uh, from Galaxy Press does a lot of guest work for us too, so thank you, Carmen. Uh, thank you, everybody over at uh, Galaxy Press and John Goodwin and a bunch of them. And, of course, uh, Writers of the Future for helping all of us out. Yes, on that note, we got to go. Good night, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the big, beautiful planet. Until next Saturday, enjoy your life. Pick up a book. Enjoy yourself. Actually, find a good book, sit down, and have a good read, especially if it's cold outside. Good night, everybody. <laughs>